1: As we talk about China easing their monetary and fiscal policies, there is a big question, which is how much more ammunition do they really have? Joining us now, I am so pleased to say, is Victor Shi, associate professor at UC San Diego, a former principal for the Carlyle Group and a former professor at Northwestern. Victor, thank you so much for being with us. I wanna talk about the composition of China's debt and how much ability they have to lever up further. So let's first talk about where do you see the biggest debt problem in China?
2: Um, Thanks for having me on. Uh, So I think the biggest problem, you know, obviously people have talked about the domestic debt, which is, you know, around 300 percent of GDP. That's uh, not good. But uh, domestically, they've got a lot of uh, policy tools to deal with that. I think the biggest uh, trouble spot that a lot of investors may not realize is China's external debt. Uh, Among EM countries, China is the largest debtor by far. Uh, according to BIS data, uh, and if you include Hong Kong, which of course is a part of China, um, China's external debt now stands around $2.5 trillion. Uh, so that's an enormous amount, even given its uh, $3 trillion in foreign exchange reserve.
0: And doesn't about $1.2 trillion of that have to be rolled over this year?
2: Uh, yeah. Well, actually, you know, uh, Hundreds of billions have to be rolled over every month because a lot of it is is short term uh, loans that Chinese banks have borrowed to finance the foreign exchange needs of Chinese companies and even China's uh, overseas investments, uh, such as part of the One Belt, One Road initiative.
1: So here's, here's where I'm wondering where the concern comes in. Is the fear, basically, that China is restricted in how much it can weaken its currency? Because if it does so uh, overly, then it will have a harder time rolling over these obligations and repaying them.
2: There are, there are many different potential risks there. There's the devaluation the risks, um, because, you know, even though a lot of these loans is denominated in dollars, of course, the, the underlying assets... Uh, that ultimately back a lot of these loans are renminbi denominated. Um, the other concern is that, you know, of course, the threat of the trade war, if it were to shrink China's trade surplus in a meaningful way, because um, currently, obviously, the trade surplus has been what China has been using to service this debt, and if um, the trade surplus were to shrink in a meaningful way, then that, that would be a problem for China. Uh, general EM panic. You know what China has done in the past couple of years is to constantly increase its external debt in order to roll over the existing debt and and to uh, pay for some of the interest even with new loans. And so you know that pipeline were to freeze uh, that also would cause a problem for china
1: i want to pick up on the interest point because this was something that was brought to my attention and i actually reached out to you about this uh just how much money china is spending on interest payments can you talk a little bit about that because i don't think a lot of people are aware that at this point given its debt load a substantial proportion of uh of, of its uh, of the money that it borrows may have to go toward just even repaying interest
2: yeah, so domestically, China has a, has a really big debt problem. Um, you know, when you have debt that is 300% of GDP and when your interest rate is not zero, like the case of Japan and some of the European countries, um, you end up spending a lot of the new credit just to service uh, the interest payment, which by my calculation uh, is something like 19 trillion renminbi or, you know, roughly $3 trillion per year So every month, the monetary authorities have to come up with uh, $300 billion just to service the interest in the economy. And and if it wants the economy to grow from investment on top of that, it would have to provide even more money. So that's why I think investors in China are very savvy now. When the PBOC cuts reserve requirement ratio by 1%, The market actually didn't really react to it because, you know, it's just par for the course. That's the minimum amount that the monetary authorities need just to roll over this uh, enormous debt pile. Uh, It would have to do a lot more. It would have to deregulate the shadow banking industry, which it just successfully regulated. It would basically have to undo all of that in order to get the economy going again.
0: Will the additional money that's necessary to finance either the rollover or indeed new borrowing on the part of China, will that compete for investor dollars who have to also fund U.S. Treasury borrowings?
2: Um, So I think, you know, the the domestic and external part are relatively separate. Um, and of course, increasingly, I mean, I think there is a, this implicit competition in the sense that Chinese investors increasingly do not want to hold their money in renminbi, uh because um, they know that the monetary authorities would just have to keep on printing money to, to prevent a crisis, knowing that they would rather hold uh, foreign currencies. And so that creates uh, almost this sort of private demand for the U.S. treasuries. As a result, of course, the Chinese government has uh, done a lot to prevent uh, domestic money from flowing overseas uh, to uh, overseas assets. Uh, they've been relatively successful, um, and so right now, you know, the, we're not seeing a massive capital flight, uh, but the temptation is there, uh, and the moment that the regulators. Um, loosen his grips, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of money would want to flow out of China.
1: Victor, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, something that you mentioned that uh, just servicing non-financial debt in China totaled about $3 trillion. You said that basically uh, that was roughly 22% of the gross domestic product of China. So this is a significant headwind to economic growth at this point. Is that correct?
2: Yes, um, it is a significant headwind, um, and and we've seen that. We've seen you know so uh, China actually did not deleverage uh, its its uh, financial system in the past year, despite the rhetoric. Um, it just slowed down the rate of growth of credit um, from you sort of mid uh, teens to uh, around ten percent, uh, and that already in itself caused a drastic slowdown of growth. Um, you know, actual deleveraging would immediately cause a financial crisis. So going forward, if it wanted growth to resume at, at, a, at a real rate of, you know, 6%, 7%, uh, which are the policy objectives still, then it would have to uh, pump a lot more money into the economy. And, and that, of course, will uh, challenge people's confidence in the room and be.
0: I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, Victor Xi is the associate professor at University of California, San Diego, joining us from La Jolla, speaking about the need for China to service its dollar-denominated debt and the amount of debt that it'll have to roll over this year.
1: Big banks are pushing back against the big equity uh, exchanges. Basically, they want to have their cake and eat it, too. They want cheaper exchanges. They want them faster. So they're going to create their own. Joining us now to talk about that, Chris Naji executive editor focusing on equities for Bloomberg. So, Chris, what exactly is this that a group of banks, nine founders, including Morgan Stanley, UBS, Citadel, Virtu, and others, what are they hoping to create here?
3: Um, I think if you, you've got to look at the. US stock market structure as this kind of constantly evolving sort of Darwinian competitive arena and there's been there's been four or five waves of that over the last 20 years this is the latest sort of you know monopoly busting effort among uh, in, in that in that cycle it's not exactly you know a bunch of ragtag upstarts you're dealing with the biggest financial institutions in the country banding together um to get some kind of inroad foothold in the uh not not really duopoly there's about there's about three companies that control most of the the stock exchanges at the moment and now there's going to be there's going to be four and this is going to be sort of mutually held thing by again all of the biggest all, all of the biggest players in the in the stock trading ecosystem including interestingly the big market makers which are really the the power players in that in that system uh, Virtu virtue and uh, citadel which are responsible for some ungodly number of trades in in the uh, in the u.s stock market chris what do these banks and brokerage firms object to when it comes to price um, it, it's not, I have to say, not altogether clear, frankly. I mean, they, in some ways, a, a lot of these a lot of these players are sort of, they're sort of the the pantheon of villains in a lot of market structure arguments. Certainly Citadel and Virtue are not companies that have n- enormous amounts of tears cried for them. Um, uh, sort of straightforwardly, one of the big cost centers, one of the only things that anyone can make any money doing in the stock market right now is selling data on trades. This incredibly, you know, this Not enormously. The data
0: that is generated by the actual customers is then. Sold back to those very customers, but at the same time, don't these exchanges pay rebates to the brokers that send them order flow? That's
3: right, and Virtu and uh, Citadel are presumably big collectors of those. So it's not entirely clear what huge advantage they're hoping hoping to leverage out of the existing exchange or create for themselves by doing this. Uh, it, this is not a, a hugely profitable business anymore. It's very low margin, very extremely high volume. That's sort of been the direction of marketing market market structure evolution over the last 20 years, that the spreads on trades have gone ever, ever slimmer, and the amount of trades that happen by virtue of basically high-frequency traders, computerized traders has gone way up, so what they lack in profits they make up for in volume. <laughs> so,
1: Chris, I wonder if there's a broader takeaway here about market structure, since people are accusing the changes in market structure that have moved trading toward a more electronic, faster, uh, you know, less lucrative for the yep. exchanges and others kind of model, and that this is the reason why things are bouncing around because there aren't humans in between. Mm. Uh, you buying that?
3: Um, I'm not sure that, that I totally buy that. I feel like volatility we shall always have. I do think that may be relevant to this to the, what's going on here today. Like a lot of stuff that goes on in market structure, if you look at it closely, is a kind of big PR game. Um, only, and and a, a serious one because uh, the regulatory sites are every once in a while trained on high-frequency trading. It's and I doubt this was the reason, but you had Steven Mnuchin Three weeks ago, talking about how high frequency traders were responsible for all of the volatility. They make fairly easy targets. And one thing you get every now and then is someone coming in saying, sort of, I'm going to baptize the world in fire. I'm going to simplify everything and put out a homey sounding press release like the one that went out this morning saying, look, we're going to come in and simplify everything. There's going to be cheaper, you know, simple order types. You had it a couple years ago with the Michael Lewis exchange, IEX, the one profiled in. Uh, Flash boys that this happens and this is a consideration where setting yourself up as kind of a hero of market structure However, questionable it ultimately is can be a worthwhile thing when regulators start to get their dander up about stuff That may be part of what's going on here I mean, I don't know, you know, I certainly it wouldn't be stated as one of the goals of the thing But it might be nice to have oh, we're coming in trying to save everyone to point to in a couple months when Mnuchin starts setting up hearings and things like that i don't i don't know it just occurs to me it's not out of the question that that's part of the motive here doesn't
0: the securities and exchange commission really regulate how much the exchanges can charge for their data
3: there's uh yeah and the exchanges recently lost uh uh, uh some kind of uh, regulatory hearing where their their fees were sent back to them for more explanation basically with the you know the expectation that they're probably going to end up being cut at the same time keeping exchanges keeping the companies that uh that, that are the sites of all the trading in this country is not totally bankrupt motive in in, in and of itself. It helps to have uh, relatively profitable venues where you can go and get your trade done in half a second. It's not a completely bankrupt motive for the work for, you know, for capitalism basically to have these things existing. So, you know, a a lot of things to balance.
0: Thanks very much for being with us. Chris Nagy is executive editor for for Equities for Bloomberg, speaking about uh, brokers forming a new stock market to take on the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, and the CBOE. On Friday, PG&E, this is uh, the uh, utility that supplies electricity and power to most of Northern California, said that it is, quote, working diligently to assess the company's potential liabilities as a result of the wildfires and the options for addressing those liabilities. Well, those liabilities may lead to bankruptcy filing and bankruptcy protection. Here to tell us more, Kit Conledge. He is our Senior Industrials and Utilities Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Kit, is this part of the negotiation that goes on between the utility and lawmakers, or is there a serious issue here that PG&E could seek bankruptcy protection Uh, because it needs it?
4: Right. Well, I think, uh, Pim, that it's both, really. I think you can't—with utilities, you can't separate— uh, the the financial condition from the political condition, it, it they are always dependent on what the regulators and the legislators do, and of course that has come to a critical situation in California, especially for pg in Northern California because of all the wildfires. So you have twenty five billion estimated or thirty billion, I saw today somebody saying in liabilities for wildfires potentially over the next. X number of years to be paid out, somebody's got to pay that. That would, I mean, the whole market cap of PG&E is only 11 billion or 10 billion now, so uh, something's got to give. So uh, a bankruptcy filing, as reported, would would not, I think, shock anybody. But whether it's needed at this point is is in question.
1: So if its market cap is uh, 10 or a little bit uh, above a billion dollars, just to give you a sense, its total debt is more than twice that at about 22 billion dollars and its bonds have been plunging. I just have to wonder what are the recoveries going to be like if they do decide to declare uh, bankruptcy or file for bankruptcy? Because this is a company that has an investment grade credit rating.
4: Right. It It is... Uh it doesn't happen that much that a utility goes bankrupt so we don't really know what would happen in that situation but uh but interestingly the one that did go bankrupt in 01 i believe it was was pg&e and i think the They're their uh, own
1: best model the, the re- exactly or worse model. you
4: can go back and look at that and the recoveries were good for bondholders uh i believe it was all fully recovered and you know it's a while ago, so I don't hold me to every detail. But I think it was all fully recovered, and eventually the stock got back to a point where it was higher than it was before they went into bankruptcy. So, but that took four or five years. So, it's a an extremely complex uh working out type of situation where of course everybody wants to get paid and the bondholders and the stockholders and the uh, trial lawyers and and the regulators and so on so it's it, it at least it will take a long time to figure out who's owed what uh, but the bottom line is California, I think that the cooler heads know that it only makes sense to have an investment-grade utility to run the poles and wires and electrons in Northern California.
0: The shares of PG&E are down a little bit more than 20% today. What would a bankruptcy filing do that would be positive for PG&E?
4: What what it would do is it would... uh, Put the question of how you adjust the debt to the amount of equity uh, into a bankruptcy court so that you would be relieved of the concern that a sudden influx of demand for payment would immediately tip over the company and and lead to a liquidity crisis. So, You know, as with any bankruptcy, that's the kind of situation. But overall, a utility bankruptcy, the idea is you take the piecemeal workout where it goes to the regulators, back to the legislators, back to the regulators, and it could just go on and on and nobody knows what's going on. At least it gets organized in a bankruptcy court and people start to say, okay, what do you need? What do you need? And the judge ultimately brings everything together and... I think in this case, the state of California would say what we need is a functioning utility.
1: So Kit, a lot of people are saying that this is basically political warfare and this is PG&E saying, okay, you're not going to bail us out? Fine, we'll file for bankruptcy and put our credit rating in jeopardy and and throw the entire utility system, uh, put it at risk. So is this a dangerous precedent for other utilities?
4: Uh, I don't think any utility would... uh lightly go into the kind of situation that PG&E is in. So I'd, I'd say I, I'm not aware of any other utility out there now that has this kind of imbalance between, as you were discussing, the debt and equity. Uh, so let's just say it, you know, it's a very unpleasant situation and nobody wants to go through it if they don't have to. But pg and is now in a situation where the debt and the increased possibility of even much more debt to pay the liabilities, uh, is much more than they can handle on their own at this point. And so they have to look for more extreme out, out, outcomes uh, than yeah. than you might hope for.
1: Kit Connolly, thank you so much for being with us. Just to also note that pg bonds that are maturing in 2024 are currently trading at a 6.5% yield compared to a 6.1% average yield on the junk-rated bonds with uh, the top ratings of junk bonds. Um, same about average maturity. If not, the PG&E bonds are actually maturing sooner. So they're being treated as junk in the bond markets, even though credit rating companies are not saying that that is what they are. Kit Conledge, thank you for joining us, senior utilities industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence.
0: He's bullish on markets for 2019. Indeed, he believes that stocks are currently undervalued. Here to tell us more, David Katz. He's the chief investment officer for Matrix Asset Advisors. He's got nearly $800 million of assets under management. David Katz, a pleasure to have you with us. Give us your thesis for 2019 for stocks.
5: Well, basically, you've just gone through the worst quarter in about a decade. You've gone through the worst December in over... 90 years. We think stocks are now at a level that's pretty attractive. The ultimate driver of stock prices is usually price earnings ratios. The market's at about 14 and a half times 2019 numbers, so that's a pretty good. Uh, level. Historically, you've done quite well from that. And we think there's just much, much too much pessimism built into stock prices right now. And there's a lot of room for them to go higher. There are a lot of great businesses that are selling at 10, 11 times earnings. Historically, you're going to make pretty good money when you can do that.
1: Yeah, David, just sort of uh, highlight the pessimism that you're talking about. BlackRock's annual survey of institutional clients overseeing $7 trillion in assets globally came out. uh, And more than half of them plan to cut stock exposure this year uh, up dramatically from the proportion that said the same thing last year. So where are you adding opportunities and when did you start buying?
5: Just one thing on that BlackRock, what's interesting is probably if they had done that uh, poll about six months ago, people were universally bullish. So you've just had this really sharp sell-off and all of a sudden sentiments turn pretty negative. We think uh, that's chasing what's happened rather than the future. Now, what what we like here is we think there are a wealth of uh, industries and sectors that are pretty attractive. We like the financials a great deal. Um, Technology has just been beaten up pretty badly. So we think there are opportunities there. Communication services, uh, another area, energy, uh, we think is poised to do a lot better. The stocks have really been washed out and select healthcare. So really lots of different places uh, to make money. The uh, key driver there is depressed valuation, good long-term outlook.
0: David, I'm assuming that everyone has access to more or less the same information that you have access to. So it must be your reading of the information that causes you to be bullish and a bit of a contrarian. Maybe you could just give us an example, whether it is Comcast or whether it is Facebook or another stock to sort of highlight your strategy and why your perspective is different.
5: Well, our perspective is different because we try not to get caught up in the day-to-day mania. So right now, the market is very, very focused on the negatives associated with the trade war. Uh, with interest rates uh, about six weeks ago, they were rising. Our earnings are going to be at a slower pace this year. So you hear that from many strategists that how can the stock market go up with a slower earnings pace. We actually looked at the period from 1937 to 2018. Uh, the level of earnings growth and its impact, on stock prices. How did the S&P 500 do when earnings growth was higher, when it was lower? Uh, And we found there was almost a zero correlation. So that really means that that's not going to be the driver in aggregate for stock prices this year. A lot of people are getting caught up in that we agree that earnings growth is going to be a lot slower than it was in 2018, uh, but you really can do pretty nicely in a 5 or 10% growth mode. In terms of your question on individual stocks, Comcast has been a great uh, business. It's grown at north of 15% a year for the last 10 years. Uh, we really like management. We like the acquisition that they made internationally. And you're, you're getting this wonderful business at about 13.9 times earnings. Uh, normally, it'll sell uh, at 15, 16, 17 times earnings, So you're getting a really good business at a very attractive price.
1: Another stock that you find attractive is Facebook, which is kind of interesting because there is a lot of pessimism around this one. Uh, The biggest bear on the street, Pivotal Research Group, came out today saying that Facebook is likely to see another rough year and lowered their price target to $113 from $125 previously, currently shares at $138. I'm just wondering, where do you see Facebook shares going and what gives you conviction that these bears are wrong?
5: Well, we're not that happy with Facebook management, and we really do think that they run a business uh, without a lot of ethics. So we think regulation is going to be a much better thing for them. We think they can do a lot better in in providing accurate information uh, and not chasing uh, the dollar as their sole motivation. Having said that, Um, they have a tremendous franchise, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp, uh, they make an enormous amount of money. Advertising dollars are going more and more to social media. And it really is one of the best ways to target your ad and get the consumer to buy. So even though they've got a lot of business problems and they're going to have to spend a lot more money, uh, in terms of, uh, Uh, managing themselves better, they're still going to make a boatload of money. So for all of the negatives, right now, Facebook is selling at about 16.4 times uh, 2019 earnings. They've got about $15 cash per share. So if you adjust for cash per share, it's at about 15 times adjusted earnings. Uh, And historically, when you can buy a very good growth business uh, at that type of price, you're going to do very, very well. Tell us
0: about your call for the industrial sector. Is that geared towards global economic growth?
5: So we we think that the global economy is going to be okay. It definitely is going to be a lot less robust than it was in 2018. Uh, Europe is struggling a little bit. Uh, China has slowed down. But having said that, a lot of these companies have sold off 30% and are selling at 12 times earnings. And we think that Uh, It's an absolute imperative that the United States and China come up with some sort of a trade deal. It's in both of their interests. We think uh, President Trump, uh, while he might not like to do uh, a deal, uh, is going to have to in order to stabilize the U.S. market. And if that's the case, we think industrials are very well positioned to start to grow again. And you're getting these companies at really good prices, whether it's a United Technologies or an Eaton Corp or a T-Connectivity, really good businesses that will do better in a reasonable global economy.
1: So just real quick, are there any stocks that you're staying away from?
5: So the one group that actually did pretty well last year, even though the business was not that good, were utilities. Uh, They were a flight to quality Uh, As a result, they're selling at the high end of the valuation range that we normally would like for such a slow growth group. So this is a group that we would be taking money away from and putting into all of these other areas that we just mentioned.
1: So you're not buying PG&E?
5: Surely not. I mean, when you're when you're looking at that, that's just you're making a bet that they're not going to go bankrupt. And generally, when you buy utilities, you're buying it for safety. So that would not fall into that category. If you're trying to buy a utility for safety, uh, companies like Duke are very good companies, but we think they're pretty fully priced.
1: David Katz, thank you so much for being with us. David Katz, Chief Investment Officer at Matrix Asset Manage Advisors. Uh, Matrix, Matrix Asset Advisors is, is, is based in New York.